SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise one movie at a time. Or is that movies in a franchise one film at a time? I can never tell. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. And if you want to drink horse piss, we're serving it up here. Speaking of horse piss, here's uh, Alexander Miller. Hey there. Uh, thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Sure. Um, I think, you know, starting this episode officially, you were elevated from mere guest to uh, a regular in the show, so it's just an open invitation anytime. And I will give you the title Sequel Cast uh, Archivist. Oh, I love it. Because you saved our bacon with uh, being the only person that purchased the USB stick. Sequel Cast on a stick. I still have it in my, my Chairman Mao mug of flash drives. Very good. Very good. Very good. Um, we are talking about Battles Without Honor and Humanity, kicking off the five-film uh, series, looking at the original five films. Five films over two years, which I can't fucking believe, dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, these um, these uh, Toy Studio early 70s uh, Japanese guys don't mess around. Uh, directed by Kinji Fukasaku, written by Kazuro Kasahara, Koji Sundo, Koichi Ibuishi, and I probably mangled all those names. Um, it features music by Toshiaki Tsushima and cinematography by Sadaji Yoshida. Uh, uh, with a running time of 99 minutes. Uh, this is also known by the title The Yakuza Papers. Yeah, and um, the original title is actually, um, it's a the original title is actually um, uh, Battles of No Ginji, and Ginji is a literal translation to chivalry. And chivalry was just kind of a default mm. definition for uh, for Ginji because there wasn't really an American or an English translation that was that was suitable for for chivalry, the level um, of chivalry or honor. That's, that's why that's my they went to without honor and humanity for for the title. It's a good bit of trivia. Let's kind of get some initial thoughts on the movies. Uh, Thrasher, I think this was your first time watching this show, is that right? Yes and no. Uh, this is the first time I've seen the movie from beginning to end. I recognize the intro. I'm pretty sure I saw the intro as part of a film class uh, back back when we were in college. Uh, but yeah, this was my first time seeing the, the whole film. Uh, I absolutely loved it. This is a, a great bit of cinema. Excellent. Yeah, I think for me, the first time I, I, I had heard about this one, fellas, is uh, Kill Bill had come out. I was in college, and there's that music track uh, in the first film that later got used in commercials called Battles Without Honor and Humanity, and it's actually from the soundtrack to the remake or soft reboot of this that came out... Um, I'm not sure when that is. The, the second cycle of these films. Um, 
and so I and, and so I, I did some research on Wikipedia, Wikipedia as you do, and discovered this was a whole big ass series, but I didn't have the money to get a box set, or perhaps one wasn't available at the time. And recently, um, and it still is as of this recording, uh, not just the original five films, but also the three films in the follow-up series are all on Amazon Prime um, streaming. So. I thought, hell, might as well take advantage of that. And Alex is uh, uh, knows the most about Japanese cinema out of any of us. So, uh, in fact, you suggested we do it. And uh, yeah, all, all the all the uh, Tetris pieces fell into place, as it were. Oh, and uh, a word of warning: if you are going to watch this on Amazon Prime, I don't know if you all had this trouble, but it kept cutting off the bottom of the letters on the subtitles for me. I've had that problem. With yes, it drove it, you on Amazon Prime. It drove me. It drove me fucking crazy. Like I. I can tell i know i know the english language right but still (laughs) yeah right but but still you know things like uh but letters like g or q or uh o would just have you know i think it's maybe a five pixel thing and uh, that's really interesting alex you said you've seen that on other stuff on yeah other um foreign language films i've seen or just uh english language because i do watch a lot of english language stuff with subtitles anyway just because it helps retain the old information um, yeah, and stuff gets cut mm-hmm. off. It's kind of frustrating. And I noticed Amazon Prime's video is kind of buggy, even though they do have a lot of... Uh, they have a really good selection. Um, but anyhow, um, it's got to be very problematic when watching these movies because there's a lot of shifting alliances and different names and um, a lot of double-crossing that goes on. So having a cropped name would be uh, be a kind of kind of troublesome <laughs> with these movies yeah not yeah. absolutely i think um you know some people have called this series like the equivalent of the japanese godfather but i'd argue this is a much more complicated narrative than any of the godfather films. oh yeah and and the first time you watch this hell even maybe the fifth time you've watched these films you're not going to keep track of all the names you're going to get a little bit confused and that's okay yeah. no, no you will not but the punchy explosive verite gritty cinematography and and overall aesthetic will will keep you there no matter what. I mean, I probably have seen these films in their entirety about, I don't know, probably eight, ten times over the past, you know, 15 years. And, and even, like, in this this wow. past week, I was like, oh, that's why they killed Shinkai. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, like, something new does come to light because it's, it's very dense. And I think the language barrier has a little bit something to do with it and that you have a lot of names that are similar and dissimilar. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, it's a fascinating piece of cinema to begin with. Dense is the right word, because this is only a 99-minute uh, movie, but there is about three hours' worth of content in it. Something is always happening. The The dialogue is full of so much character and portent. Everything is constantly moving forward. Even when you think the movie has slowed down to catch its breath, no, it's not. There's something. Some, there, there's, there's so much tension going on, even in those quiet moments. Uh, I... I loved that this movie did not give me a break. No, definitely yeah. did not. Yeah. yeah. It, respects it respects the intelligence of its audience. It, uh, it, you, know, it like you know, kind of like a, a, good fiction, a good science fiction film, not just a science fiction. fiction. It drops you in a world that's already formed and goes, keeps on moving at high speed and doesn't wait for you to catch up. Yeah, just kind of it hits the ground running. And um, I guess just like a little frame of reference in terms of uh, Yakuza cinema is that um, leading up to um, leading up to Battles Without Honor and Humanity was that you had a, like a legacy of Yakuza cinema going like like all great genres going all the way back to the silent era and um, hmm. 
the golden age of Yakuza films was, you know, the, the late 50s um, through the 60s. And these, these were called uh, Ninkyo Ega films where you had, you know, usually like a lone hero kind of wander into a town and um, they were Yakuza. And the Yakuza code was very much a strict thing. It was like um, it was like the samurai code, except you had tattoos and you gambled. Is um, basically, and it basically follows the you know where the the Meiji Restoration you know crumbled, and then we were going into you know the early days of the 20th century to the years leading up to World War II. So you had a lot of films called uh, you know there was a lot of series uh, starring um, actors like Ken Takakura. Uh, Junko Fuji, um, uh, Koji Saruta, and they were all leased out or part of uh, Toei Studios, who rolled um, Battles of Honor and Humanity. And they were very, you know, um, formulaic. You had a you had a lone hero. They would take care of business, and then at the end, you know, kick everyone's ass and ride off into the sunset. And then, um, like the Ken Takakura films, would kind of become series. You had the brutal tales of chivalry. Then you had contemporary tales of chivalry. With uh, Junko Fuji, um, you had female-led Yakuza films like The Red Panty Gambler, um, you know, uh, Lady Gambler. You had uh, Excuse walk- me. Did you Excuse say me. Did you say the red panty gambler? Uh, panty, the flower. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's, oh, okay. It's spelled like P-E-O-N-Y. Um, and then you had the Abashiri Prison series with uh, Ken Takakura. And they're great films, but they're very formulaic, and they're very, you know, you have a lot Mm -hmm. of um, uh, kabuki-style influence, various still camera movements. Um, You know, Yakuza would introduce each other, introduce themselves to each other in these very formal, you know, formal um, manners and stuff like that. And then um, Kinji Fukusako ushered in the Jitsuroku era, which is the kind of, um, there is no honor, there is no humanity. The um, the era of chivalry is gone, and it's very much an uh, it's very much an allegory for um, post World War II Japan, and that's where um, the first volume of the Yakuza papers puts us. Is that we're in the black market? There's no chivalry. There's no honor. We don't respect people. We don't respect women. We don't respect each other. We don't respect a code. And it's a perfect um, it's a perfect allegory for the change in Yakuza cinema and the change in Japanese culture. Because this all takes place in Kurei City within the Hiroshima prefecture, you know, right where Ground Zero is, right where the bomb dropped, and A-bomb, I, yeah, A-bomb, yeah, yeah, and that's where um, actually the neighborhoods in Hiroshima and Kurei City were called the A bomb slums, and I think that's where yeah. Fukusaka hmm. really captures the essence of what these movies are all about. So that's my little intro. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, doing research, doing for, research this, for this, I, I see it was based, based on, on a, a, a non-fiction piece of work called the Yakuza Papers, um, but I haven't, I don't think they made a version available in English at all, which is quite the shame. I, I would very much like to read the source material, even though in the movie they do change the, the real names of both the Yakuza uh, games and... Um, prefectures and names, names and, and, and even even events, you know, events, sort of, you know it's sort of kind of a, kind of a, a, a loosely based, based thing, thing. I but I would love to read the source yeah, material. Me too. Have you been to able see a, to see a, to find an English version? Because I wasn't able to find uh, anything to that anything regard. Yeah, yeah I, I have looked too and I can't really find anything, but I guess the, the uh, Kenji Fukasaka worked with... Um, a source of his that would point him to places and be like, well, when I shot this guy, he rolled around like that. <laughs> and, you know, and my cohorts <laughs> oh my would, would, would advance on him with that. 
And um, I think the aesthetic, too, the very, you know, shaky, intense, um, you know, uh, a, a verite aesthetic, very much informed. I know um, William Friedkin's gone on the record saying that mm -hmm. this was mm -hmm. a big inspiration for him for the French Connection. And that very punchy kind of anything can happen expectancy of the film. Um, and it's fascinating because um, one of the main producers at Toy Studios, um, uh, Akoji Fundo, uh, he, he did not like Kenji Fukasaku at all. Like, he had no faith in this guy. And then in 72, mm. he had a film called Street Mobster with Bunta Sugawara, who's a star of the Yakuza papers as uh, Shozo Hirono. And um, it was a big hit, and um, it really was a very nihilistic... Uh, anti-authoritarian take on the on the on the formula of the Yakuza film, and it really turned Toei around. So he had no choice but to really, you know, adopt Fukusaku's aesthetic and style. And um, it was a very uh, terrific turn because the old formula was kind of um, dying out. It's kind of like the going from Tron Ford to Sergio Leone or, or or Sam Peckinpah with these movies. And there's no. Um, like what, whatever informed Fukusaku's aesthetic is uh, very organic and self-sustained. I don't think he's really borrowing from anything. I think this is just kind of an artist kind of exploding on film, you know, if it were. You, you mentioned uh, the violence uh, in an earlier comment, and I'm glad you did. I really do like the way, the effective way that this film handles uh, its violence, and for two main reasons. One, as you said, with like the camera angles, it, it, is, it is, in a sense, it is, an, it is intimate violence. We are constantly brought in to see in, in close-up detail the wounds being dealt. Uh, uh, but then beyond that, the violence, I would say that most of the, the bloodshed is probably handled pretty realistically, except, of course, when you have... Uh, a uh, recurring theme in these uh, in this film is you know, uh, people losing limbs, you know, <laughs> limbs just getting completely chopped off. And whenever that happens, you get, I mean, of course, in, in the real world, if that happened, yeah, there'd be quite a bit of blood. But here, you get a full-on arterial spray that they cut away from right before your brain realizes how cartoonish and over-the-top yeah. that spray is. And I think that creates a perfect violence. So it has the impact that it needs to have but doesn't turn doesn't turn into to anything egregious, and I love I love the thickness of the blood. I love oh, yeah. that it is blood that stains and leaves its mark both on the wounded, but also on the dealers of wounds, but yeah. also on the environment. <laughs> well, that's the thing too is that um, there's a fine line that you straddle where you know with screen violence and and bloodshed, especially where it goes from you know jarring to to silly. You know, you're you're either Sam Peckinpah or you're Monty Python. <laughs> And, you know, he, they know when to cut. Um, I guess to fall into um, to, to narrative, it starts with um, uh, a disaffected soldier listening to an old song because he's in a tavern, and the, the barkeeper says, like, why are you listening to this old song? And he's like, you know, hey, let me do my thing. And then he finds out that, you know, his buddies get into a scuffle with some fellow Yakuza, and then they cut off his arms just to show him a lesson. And it's a very, 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 like, there's a lot of intense moments in this series, but that one's like one of the most, and it's a you know kind of a grab you by the collar example of what's to come in the series. 
Well, well, not just that, but it, it, the, the, the opening that's in uh, you know, Hiroshima in 1946, so right after World War II, it's, it's, not, it's on a U.S. military base, as I understand it. Yeah. And uh, so, so you have that also adding to the tension. And um, the, the one guy that comes out to, to fight, he is dressed like an old school like samurai guy. And to, and to see that, that kind of clothing in the middle of all this um, modern-day clothing of the 1940s is very uh, jarring, and it also just made kind of made me chuckle because it's maybe kind of a call-out to what most people would think of a Japanese film as the samurai picture, right. I would think. And that's a very um, that's a very good observation in that you know you have uh, this guy you know sporting a very ceremonial japanese garb with the with the waistband and the in the um i don't say kimono but cloak whatever you want to call it and um you know and, and he's a total dipshit he's he's completely shit-faced and he's kind of dumb you know fumbling around and whatnot and it also sets up that um when uh Hirono, he says you know i'm not a yakuza but i'm gonna help my buddy out because he got his ass kicked and then um you can already tell he's being a strategist. He goes, you know, hey, I'll take care of this because if you do it, you're going to lose face. And if, you know, my buddy does it, then he's going to get in trouble. And already is kind of planting the seeds of how this guy is going to be a stand-up dude and also kind of work the system to his advantage. And that's, a, I guess, an ongoing theme throughout the, the five uh, films that we'll, we'll embark on. Well, on the subject of of uh, the the clothing, uh, we see uh, old fashioned and traditional Japanese garb come up time and time again in this film, and that's one thing that the movie does really well to sort of express the passage of time. Is throughout the movie, in general, we see the clothing become more and more modern and more and more Western. Western. But in every era, there's always at least one character that wears something very old fashioned, and for all many of the characters talk about having a code and having honor one thing that really struck me is that the further into the modern day this movie gets the more you realize how hollow those statements are because effectively by, by the time this movie ends all the people who are still wearing the traditional garb they're just cosplaying a romantic notion of what the yakuza used to be even though clearly they know full well what the yakuza now is yeah. uh, like um one thing I find is kind of fascinating is that um, when uh, uh, Shinke, the, the, I call him Sunglasses, yeah, the guy, yeah. guy who got whacked at the end um, in the little uh, gift shop, um, he seems... He's the Mo Green of the series. Yeah, he's, exactly. He is the Mo Green <laughs> of the series. And, um, yeah, that was something that always uh, kind of stuck out to me. And, um, and like you were saying, Thrasher, earlier, that it's a very, like, loaded narrative. Like, I'm just going through my notes and, like, like I said, every time I watch, I'm like, "Oh my God, this, that, and the other." And I'm, I'm thinking of the, uh, the Philippon thing. Um, you know, Hirono's in and out of prison like twice, and also the, the, the depiction of violence is that, um, you know, you, you see a lot of like uh, pistols jamming, and a lot of like, you know, very, um, very uh, declamorized um, acts of violence. And uh, it was, I guess it was very common in what little research I've done about the historical derivations of these movies is that you would have a lot of kind of kludged um, handguns that were either stolen from GI bases or just kind of repurposed from, from ex-GIs and that you would have a lot of misfires and jams and clicks and stuff like that. So, you know, you'd go into an assassination plot and try to take someone out and then you'd, you'd squeeze off one round and then it jammed and you had to run. Um, 
and I think that's uh, perfectly captured in this. And um, you know, when when Hirona goes to prison, there's the there there's a there's like a minor riot because of the rice ration, which is when he makes the um, the alliance with um, uh, Wakasugi, and that's the guy who commits uh, seppuku in the prison uh, in in Adseg, and then you know that leads to his grandfathering in with the Yakuza family of the Yabamori clan. And um, things really look like they hurt in this movie. There's no, uh, there's no glorification. It's, everything looks incredibly painful and unpleasant. And I think that's a testament well, to his style, yeah. Well, also, the other thing I, I love in the Seppuku scene, so I love a, a lot of these characters, for everything they do, they are not necessarily the best at what they do. And one thing that really struck me during that Seppuku scene when he tries to do the Seppuku on himself with the razor as all part of that ploy to get himself a medical release from prison early, knowing full well could kill him, yeah. is that uh, is a, a Hirano, who's cut this deal with him that he'll alert the guard, the whole time Hirano is like, now? Do, do, I, do I get the guard now? Are, are you? Are, how much pain are yeah. you in? Do I get the guard now? Like, are you dead and like, enough yet? <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. when he gets the guard, he is clearly desperate enough that that's when he would have gotten the guard if he had no idea that there was if there was no plan at all. He's completely freaked out by that moment. <laughs> and it's a real kind of much from that scene. I was conflicted myself because in Japanese society, from what from what I learned from pop culture and, and, and history and studying things you know if, if someone makes the choice to kill themselves that's a very serious decision not undertaken flippantly or lightly uh so should you interfere with that it, it, I'm, I'm thinking of the incident in vietnam where the monk set himself on fire and the u.s photographer took a photo of him um, and people say, and people say well, shouldn't you have stopped him from right. from doing that uh, act of protest, act of protest so, right? So uh, I don't know I what I would have done in that situation. I might have faked like I was asleep. Yeah, I think like it's it puts um it kind of uh, is a testament to the revisionist bent of the whole of the whole series is that like you know when a character commits seppuku in in samurai films, it's an act of honor. You know, it's a it's a dignified. Um, send off to the you know bushido code or the hagakure or whatever uh, whereas this it's um i want to get out of prison because i know the the jails are overburdened with so many people in the war so if i you know jab myself in the belly with this homemade shiv let me bleed a little bit so they can't patch me up properly and i get to go home <laughs> so and it's um in uh one of the um posters it's uh i don't know if it's for volume one or two or three or four or five i don't know Japanese that well and it shows a um, white cloth wrapped around a pistol and when you commit seppuku you're given a a, um, a a kanto or tanto blade which is your secondary to your samurai sword and that's what you would use to commit seppuku with but in this it's a it's a pistol wrapped in the in the cloth which is really kind of a testament to the revisionist bent of the Yakuza papers well, also, something else going back to the, the seppuku scene is before that happens is uh, uh, Wakasugi, the, the guy who, who performs the seppuku, um, uh, before that he uh, he and Hirono, they they become, you know, sworn sworn brothers. There's this whole thing where they, they, they take the razor and they each, like, they hold, clasp hands, they, they cut open part of their arm, and then they drink from each other's veins. And they're, they're, that... 
that scene, I mean, that, that really does cement the bond and, and the blood ties. That is a perfect way to visually represent it. But beyond that, in that moment, we see a greater intimacy between those two men than we see between any other oh, yeah. two characters throughout the rest of this film. Yeah, and that's the thing is that, like, it's the, um, um, an earlier Kenji Fukusaku film called uh, Sympathy for the Underdog, and it's, it's kind of like Street Mobster, where the underlings are the true heroes. It's the downtrodden guys, not the bosses or the second-in-commands mm-hmm. or the capos, as we'd call them, the mafia. And it's, it's your blue-collar guys. It's your guys in prison. And these are the only guys that really uphold any tradition. Um, Shozo Hirono is very much the only upstanding guy, and even... Um, and even against, like, you know, the, the as they would call him, um, scheming, uh, Yamamori, his boss, um, is uh, one of the few people that actually adheres to some kind of code. And it's not so much a Yakuza code, it's just it's just more of a moralistic code of, hey, I'm not going to be a shitty person, <laughs> instead of, hey, I'm going to be a good Yakuza or a bad Yakuza. He's, he's kind of both. He's a good Yakuza and a good person without being um, morally compromised. Which is kind of a Western ideal, too, um, where you have these moral qualifiers in gangster films. They're usually very Catholic in their, in their um, Old Testament pugilism. That's a whole other conversation. Um, uh, yeah, like with the 1930s with the gangster films, and you also had the code in the United States, his code or whatever in the United States. If it was about a gangster, at the end they always had to die for their crimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had to face a comeuppance of some sort. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't let anyone think that crime paid. <laughs> but, sure. Uh, a scene in this film that, that I thought was even a bit humorous, and, I, and I, this, film, this film does have more humor than I was expecting, is when uh, Marlon Brando reprised his role as the godfather and said, it was really quite, quite an astonishing scene. I loved it because Mrs. Yamamori is like, she, when he gets into the scuffle at the gambling den, after his, like, you know, first two years in the, um, first year or so in the Yamamori family, you know, he's like, oh, you know, I'll pay for it by cutting off a finger. And the boss is like, yeah, that won't cost me anything. Which is another, <laughs> <laughs> like, how cheap your boss can be. Which we, I think, we can all relate to. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so he's like, I, I don't know what to do. And the, the wife's like, oh, here, like, I'll show you. And she gets out, like, the cutting board. And she's like, don't do it on the good side of the tatami mat. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, yeah, you just use your weight like this, and then he does it. And again, like other moments in this film, looks really fucking painful. And then they can't find it, which is kind of hilarious. And that's the real funny yeah. thing. It's in the grass, and they're like, there's, there's a bit of a moment, like, where's the? So I think someone where, says like, the, oh, you did it for nothing. <laughs> oh yeah, they they run all around the yard trying to find <laughs> where it's fallen. And then of course they find it in a chicken a chicken yeah. coop, and one of the chickens is pecking away at it. Yeah. It's and, a, then, it's a, go on. and then the perfect button on that scene is we then cut to the finger being ceremonially presented to the rival boss and it's this whole thing and he goes You're, you had your man cut off his finger? Yeah. You didn't need to do that. Because it's a quarrel between mm-hmm. hot-blooded youths. <laughs> yeah, this is not, yeah, it's, it's boys, boys between boys. Be boys. Always forgiven. You didn't need to do that. <laughs> God, it, 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 it really is 
just such, such, a, good such a good sequence. sequence. And, and at the same, same time, I would argue it's not all for, for laws. Right. Because, because it, it shows that Hirono is, is serious about wanting to be a made man. And he doesn't fuck around. I mean, he's a flawed human being. Everyone in this film Yeah, no one's good here. Yeah, you're hinting at this, Alex. These are all scumbags from a certain point of view. On the other hand, but they're people. They might have a wife or a kid. To them, it's a job. Right. And it, I would argue what we see here is less romanticized than what we see in The Godfather, or especially Goodfellas. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing, too, is that, like I was saying, um, like the analogy of, of, of post-World War II Japanese culture in, in the culture of Yakuza uh, cinema is that, um, again, you know, the honor and, and, and chivalry are, are, are completely gone, but also... Um, <clears throat> But also, like, the uh, stylistic um, um, input is also completely rewritten. And um, the thing, too, is that it, it just perfectly coincides with a culture of people who maybe grew up watching, you know, the films of uh, Kurosawa and Mizuguchi, and then, you know, they reawaken to a country they don't recognize. Um, and that, you know, it wasn't that far removed to the point where, you know, a lot of this film feels like neorealism, and then you're thinking, well, it's made in 1970, so uh, 73, and the bomb was dropped, you know, close to 30 years earlier. But the reconstruction of Hiroshima and Kure City was so, you know, the, the, fresh. the fresh. Yeah, exactly. That you didn't really have to, uh, you know, go and hunt for the A-bomb slums because they were still there. So it's a very punchy and fresh um, uh, film, and it's very, very uh, politically and socially uh, trenchant in just how. Um, and just how uh, uh, bold it is. Um, I forget where I was going with all this, but... Um. Slamming so, I mean, Thrasher, so, I mean, as you mentioned, there's so much crap going on in this film. Uh, I don't mean that as a slam, necessarily. That, I mean, you could really do this story as a six-hour miniseries and give it more room to breathe, and I think that might even be a better format for this. If I was doing a remake, that might be how i do it. But what are some, some scenes in here that kind of stick out? Because we've been kind of talking about the beginning of the film. If we talk about the thing blow by blow, we'll be here for five hours. So. Oh, yeah, there, there's way too much to, to cover, to so cover there. Scene by scene. Yeah. Well, well, We're not the alien man. So, something... <laughs> Something that that I did I did really enjoy is this this whole bit where to uh, where to square a deal you know there's there's all this you know reconstruction work that's being done and the yakuza wants to be involved but the short of it is like they, they there's like the the city council need, is going to have a vote on on some like reconstruction bill and so to square a deal they say oh well we'll just we'll make sure that this one councilman votes the one the one way and this this harkens back to the idea that they're good at their jobs but that good so they kidnap this <laughs> this uh, councilman and they basically just kind of wine him and dine him and keep him hold, hold up for for uh, uh several several weeks i i think is the implication yeah, i think uh, one guy but goes the, like hey my name is so-and-so so you know you know who did it but you oh, can't yeah, come back they, on me <laughs> yeah after they put him on the street he just flat out tells what his name yeah. is so like hey well i can't move against right. you but you, i know other people who can um but the thing that the thing that I love is if you follow if you follow what's going on with the the politics of Japan and the reconstruction, the yakuza doesn't get what they want because he votes the way they want him to. The yakuza gets what they want because without him there, they can't reach a quorum, and so the bill dies in committee. <laughs> and it's uh, it's perfectly convoluted with uh, with the 
you know, the deeply, you know, um, the, the complex structure of the film, too, where, um, you know, Yakuza were actually very, very much active in, in Japan's politics and in, in social miasma. Um, like, the black markets were a very real thing. That's why, you know, Johnny Walker and Stakes and Lucky Strikes are, are very popular amongst Japanese people for, for decades past uh, World War II. Is that that these were things well, that the black market were trafficked in? Well, related to that, something else I love is that aside from the drug dealing um, that, that goes and the gambling that goes on in this, most of the business that we see is the Yakuza doing legitimate business, but in a ridiculously crooked way. Like, what's one of their big their big deals? Oh, they got a job like unloading cargo for the Navy and like moving provision consignments to, to bases and things like that. And like, oh, what is this? Oh, it's a water taxi service. Yeah, exactly. And they're actually running the water taxi. And then, like, um, the, I remember trying to Google it for years because um, in the, I guess, uh, third act where um, the Philippon deals were going on, I'm mm. like, Philippon, I'm like, I, I have no idea what that is. Like, and I tried to look it up when I first saw the movie, and I think this is in 2008, so maybe it wasn't as prevalent then. And then just watching it this time around, I looked it up and I found out that uh, Philippon was a... Um, a crystallized methamphetamine made by the Japanese government, and it translates to mm. uh, love of our uh, embrace of work. And it was just <laughs> meth. It was just crystal meth, and that a lot of it had to do with uh, man- it was manufactured by the Japanese government for the military, and they exported a lot of it to to Korea. I'm 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 glad I'm glad to know that now because I was I was not able to figure out what Philippon was and I just kind of assumed it was heroin. Now, 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 did not the U.S. military do some of that same thing to keep like fighter pilots away? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And oh oh, no, there's a long history of barbiturates uh, in in the UN stimulants in the the U.S. military. That is that is correct. Oh, and even in you know Starship Troopers, of course, a lot of the other Space Marine things they use the stims to to shoot themselves up right before they go into battle against the the bugs in Clendathu. And occasionally the skinnies. Well, that's well, only, only in the novel or the CG series Starship Troopers Roughnecks. <laughs> which, uh, have you seen that, Alex? I have it, but I haven't watched it yet. I got it at Rite Aid for six bucks. <laughs> On every three episodes, we like to talk about Roughnecks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a great one where they have... Um, this has to be a deliberate kind of Robocop reference, but they have a robot that kind of joins the squad, and they're kind of suspicious of it. And, and the robot takes things quite quite literally, almost like a, a severely autistic person or something. And, and, and one of the... So, and, you know, the bugs are coming, and one of the guys says, like, uh, oh, no, we got to beat feet, meaning they got to haul ass to get out of there. And the robot says, why would someone want to strike one's extremities? So I think you have some clever humor in that series, and there's clever humor in Battles Without Honor and Humanity. That's what we call a terrible segue, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it, I, I, every time I've seen this film, and I've seen this film three times, twice in the past week, uh, I laugh my ass off in a scene fairly early on where Hirono is... Um, is having sex uh, rather roughly uh, with the with the woman, and she says, oh, "It hurts." And he says, "Sorry, there's not any time." Yeah, he says, be, "She says be gentle." And he says, "I don't have time." Which, yeah, that that in his case, that is that is yeah. He he, as far as he knows, he's going to be dead the next day. That's right. When, when his this little vacation of his is over, he's trying to get one out. Uh, 
And that's really, I mean, that's the movie in a nutshell. Yeah. Everything in this movie happens because the movie just doesn't have time. No, yeah, exactly. And it's funny because mm. I, it's it's funny because um, Kinji Fukusaku didn't know that this would become this phenomena that you know that he would make technically seven more movies, five in the series, and then three loose hanging, you know, um, uh, loose hanging informal um, um, sequels. And uh, even though that happened, you know, volumes two, three, four, and five, and then six, seven, and eight um, are the same. The same pace. They are sta- they're still very propulsive and naughty. Wow. Um, so just get ready for that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no. Shozu Hirono. The thing is, is that um, even when he freshly gets out of jail, he's like greeted with, you know, all his buddies, and and then, then um, Yamamori pulls his crying act, and that would become kind of a going um, gag in the series where he's like, oh, that's not his best performance. And, he, you know, he would say, like, oh, Hirono, you you know, no one else will stand up for me, and, you know, I'll give you all my money, and I'll give you my house when you get out, you know. Um, and it's a, it's a very, um, it's a it's a very, another telling aspect of, of how um, impoverished uh, or morally bankrupt uh, the, the, the genre has become. And it's not just, I don't feel like it's in the spirit of revisionism, but I feel like it's in the spirit of telling an honest story of the inherently flawed nature of Yakuza culture. Sure, I mean, so I mean, Yamamori, the, 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 he is such a, sort of a, a, a ham. Oh, yeah. And, like, just the, the, the shape of his face, the, the mustache, oh, yeah. the, from beginning to end, he reminded me of Mr. Mooney from the Lucy show. It's true, yeah. I mean, he, he if he terrible. wasn't ordering people's deaths, he would be a bumbling sitcom boss. Oh, yeah, no, he is terrible. And, like, that ter- like he is so not good, and he just doesn't get any better throughout the, uh, spoiler alert, uh, series. And, um... And as we learned from the finger-cutting, his wife is a better gangster than yeah, he no, is. Yeah, no, totally. And, um... She's just too demure to, to, to say it out loud. Yeah, I, I think that scene is so hilarious, and, um... And that's the other thing. He has a line where he says, um, these days we fight with money, I think. Yeah, fight, we fight with money. Money money is our tool. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's just um, when the Yakuza became very much commodified into business culture. And then that would be also, I guess to bring it all back to Robocop and Paul Verhoeven, is that that's when the <laughs> Japanese-Asian culture would get commodified into the, the business room back in the 80s in the mm. in American business. When you had, well, when, when the Japanese were actually wildly successful, successful at business. Oh, and when you had American stockbrokers reading like the Art of War and stuff like that. Yeah, and um, you were mentioning that uh, the actor that played that, that character you just mentioned, Thrasher, Nobuo Kaneko, uh, had a pretty beefy part in the 1980 miniseries Shogun, playing the part of Ishidu Kazunari. Yeah, the ruler of Osaka Castle. Osaka, there you go. So, oh, and you, and you mentioned how you know we you know we we see the the point where the yakuza gets co-opted into Japanese business culture. One thing that really stood out to me is you know as the yakuza kind of be, quote unquote becomes more legit. 
um, as, as far as like being a business organization goes. One of the things I love is how they just kind of drop, oh, no, no, the real future is going to be in these pinball arcades, which, of course, uh, is just pachinko. a sloppy translation of pachinko. Yeah. And, uh, and they even explain some of the economics. Like, no, no, it's not technically gambling. You're playing an arcade right. machine. Nothing stops you from trading in tokens to get something of real monetary value. Oh, if I may, um, when I was in uh, Japan in, in 2006 for a month, an incident I talk about way too often in this program, I'll never forget it, it's a fun time, uh, I have a, I made the mistake of playing Pachinko in, um, in Akihabara, the uh, electric district, right, where it has all the, most of the huge arcades and, and everything, and, and the one I, I picked uh, was, I have to say, the animation on these Pachinko machines, much like a, a slot machine, it has kind of a, uh, looks almost like a wide, a, a small widescreen bar that has LED graphics or something. This was an Indiana Jones-themed uh, Pachinko machine that had super deformed heads of Sean Connery and Harrison Ford, and it was, it was really a riot. I need to find video of it online or something i'll post it on twitter but um i i did the pachinko you watch the balls fall down and then instead of spitting out chips it spits out these these uh, look like little bb's right yeah they're like, spits out like these balls yeah uh, and I put the balls in this big uh, bowl, bucket, bucket, yeah, <laughs> not not a bucket. It's like a it's like a salad bowl or something. I felt like an idiot. And my Japanese was it still is rather poor. And I'm just looking around, and I walk up to some of the people that work there, and I say, "What do I do with this?" Uh, and they just point and to me and laugh. But later, I read what you're supposed to do is go to a nearby alleyway, find a guy. And then you can exchange these things in in exchange for goods or something. Well, there's like little kiosks like across the streets that so that they're technically two separate businesses. Yeah, or something. Yeah. Right, but I I, I just felt a bit humiliated, a bit humiliated and embarrassed. Uh, but it was worth it to see very silly Indiana Jones animations for thirty seconds. I, I felt I felt more of a reward from that than I have ever playing any slot machine in Vegas. Yeah. Out of curiosity, what did you do with your uh, pachinko balls? I, I just left them there. I didn't know what to fucking do with it, man. Like. Like, I, I'm sure that happens with foreigners all the time. This place had very little English signage, although the English signage in the bigger cities is, is quite good, uh, if, if sometimes hilariously incorrect. I just can't help um, but think of the, the Simpsons episode of, you all win a haul when he gets uh, the one bar gets the pachinko. <laughs> the pachinko machine, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, oh, what was it? The, 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 the Nicholas Cage pinball or uh, Pachinko commercial, <laughs> or Schwarzenegger, or yeah, all those, all the Japander was that what that was the site we visited in our college Japan. days, Thrasher. <laughs> oh yeah, where was it? Just all all uh, Japanese commercials starring Western celebrities, including an ad for a digital camcorder uh, starring George Lucas. I remember. Oh, that. where his head he morphs into me, a. Matt. I think I, I did. Yeah, uh, years ago maybe and. It, it, it's quite quite a good morphine effect. In fact, I mean, you know, ILM famously did morphine in Willow to, to proceed to have that effect ripped off in countless commercials. Um, anyhow, a little side story. Our sponsor on SequelCast 2 and Friends today is Podcorn. Let's talk a little bit about them. Hi, this is Matt Bradley Shirky, host of the SequelCast 2 and Friends podcast. And I just want to tell you about a, a real fun personal experience I had using Podcorn. 
Podcorn. It's a unique online marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, ranging from host read ads to topical discussions and interview segments. And uh, so why would this be interesting? Well, this is a podcast, right? SQL has two, it's a podcast. And if you're listening to it, I bet you have an idea for a podcast yourself. And uh, and when you get to making one, or maybe you already have one, you, you really need to think about getting a, getting a sponsor because podcasting is a hobby. You know, it's it's not cheap. Any, any money you can get to wet the beak a little, as uh, Thrasher likes to say, uh, would, would help greatly. And so with Podcorn, there's no middleman. Podcasters of all size, shapes, and sizes can uh, browse and choose opportunities on the platform, set their own rates, really easy to use. You don't have to give up any rights to your podcast. And uh, Podcorn supports you there every step of the way. In fact, initially, I was unsure if uh, this podcast was like a big enough one to even be on their platform, and I got a response right away from their uh, technical support. Really nice, really, uh, we had a good sort of conversation, clearing up any confusion I had with them, and I'm sure uh, they would do the same to you. They just want to give podcasters transparency and creative freedom. And I think and that it's easy to use. You're not going blindly to a site, emailing them and going, oh, hey, hey, sir. Hey, miss. Can I go? And uh, uh, would you like to sponsor my podcast? Uh, you know, if you do that, no place is going to get back to you, especially if you don't have that much of an audience. But, you know, Podcorn, they take, uh, they're very open. They want to help you out. So uh, I would highly recommend them. So you can click the link in the show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities for your podcast today. Thanks. And uh, now we go back to our show. So back to oh, yeah. Battles Without so I guess Honor and Humanity. We're, um, so yeah, the um, one of the major producers at um, uh, Toei, you know, he did not have any faith in Fukusaku. This movie literally turned the studio around. It was kind of a game changer for the studio. Um, you mean in terms of like box office? It was like a yeah, huge no, smash hit right deal. off the bat. There was yeah. a stream mobster with Bunta Sugawara who had gone to become uh, Hirono. And then um, getting into it, he had brought in some other actors that he worked with. Um, let me see. The dude who plays um, uh, the most lovable, hateable guy, um, uh, Kuni Tanaka, who plays uh, Makihara. A little like underling of Yamamori's, a little like squirrely looking dude. Who you kind of mm-hmm. love to hate. He's the one that wrote Wakasugi's um, address in the map, and then at the end you realize that that he's the guy that kind of was the betrayal, betraying betraying oh, yeah. factor. And he's he, he's in every film in the series, and he's such a bastard. You'd love to hate him. <laughs> and there's it's a little finger. There's a there's a great um there's another great Kinji Fukusaku film called uh, Graveyard of Honor, with um with uh, Tatsuya Watari and um. And uh, uh, Kuru Tanaka, the guy that plays um, Makihara in this, and he plays a junkie, like, sidekick of the main character. He's terrific. Um, anyhow, back to the first volume. Um, you see a lot of double crossings and, and, and switching alliances and stuff, and the what I love about um, Kenji Fukasaku is that this is one of the first films where he employed title cards into hits. Where you'd see, or not even just hits, or introduction of characters, you know, you'd see, uh, you know, future boss of the Yamamori family, or future underboss of the Doi family and um, I remember I was watching it with my mom who gave it to me as a Christmas present in like 2008 I think and she was like is this a documentary (laughs) Um, did did she like it was a bit awkward when uh, watching some of the scenes with her or or I think she was like cooking and doing other stuff too it was like my first Christmas moving away from home 
So, like, I came home and I was like, oh, you got me the Yakuza papers. Wow. Um, <laughs> it was my, it was, it was that year's Tickle Me Elmo or Furby, you know. Yeah. Mummy, yeah. uh, mummy, can you get me the mommy, Yakuza papers, please? Can you get me Yakuza papers? I don't want anything yeah. else. Yes. 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 I, in fact, I, I, I shan't have a, a present for my birthday years hence, because Yakuza papers are so expensive on DVD, Bobby. We don't have to go on holiday for five years. I just want my young papers. It costs thruppence and a halfpenny. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, that informational text, you know, that, that crops up whenever a character is introduced. Because, uh, uh, one, it does kind of make it easier to keep track of everybody's uh, everybody's names, especially, you know, if you're watching at, watching this from an English perspective um, and, and aren't fluent in Japanese. But the, uh, but the other thing, like, is there's some subtle foreshadowing in that because it always gives, like, you know, future boss, you know, future rank. In many cases, that's the rank they're going to get right before they die. Exactly. About and, half of them end up dead which, when we get that rank. But the other thing I love is when a character dies, that text comes back. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it is unambiguous. This is the exact time and place of their yep. death. Well, and also, too, that's like... Speaking of which... Sorry. Oh. Uh, speaking of which, that brings to mind uh, the Irishman, what Scorsese does yes. in that picture. I love that. Um, it was a very, like, a... It really re-emphasized the fatalism of um, organized crime, and yes. Yes. it was also kind of darkly comedic. In that, like you know, <laughs> you've got like you know, uh, you know, Jimmy Two Face got shot six times in the face in a Philadelphia parking lot. You know, as if like you couldn't say say he got killed, you had to say he got shot six that's times like, in the that's face. Like that's like three shots, three shots per face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the mobsters are always two faced, so. Right, and they always have funny names too. That would, what's the, what's the famous one from Goodfellas? Like Billy two times, two times, and then he, oh, yeah. the camera goes by him and he says two yeah, times, two times. Get the papers, get the papers. Get the papers, get the papers. Get the papers. <laughs> um, Joey bag of donuts. <laughs> there, there's a good spoof of that scene in uh, a movie that's that's really overlooked. Uh, originally titled Jane Austen's Mafia, later released under the title oh, that movie's Just awesome. Mafia. Yeah. Because, because test audiences were too, didn't, didn't know what Jane Austen was. <laughs> and that's the reason um, why directed, it didn't do well. Wow. Yeah, it directed by one of the uh, members of Zaz. I remember Jay Moeller was in that, right? Uh, I believe Jay Moore was the yeah. lead. Um, I remember him yeah. zapping like 15 it, dudes in the, the mocking of the casino movement. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's it pretty. pretty... What? Well, <laughs> I think mocking the beginning of uh, or the prequel stuff of Godfather stuff Two, of Godfather the way, two, he, gets, like, way he gets like to the boat is he, he gets shoved up a donkey's, up a donkey's, donkey's ass. ass. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, it, I, I need to watch that pic. I need to watch. Have you seen that picture, Thrasher? I think. No. No. I. I don't think I've seen the whole thing. I think I passed it on Comedy Central. I, re- I recall yeah. a scene at a strip club where at one point the stripper is just doing parallel bars on the stripper pole, but it's like horizontal, defying all laws of physics. Uh, yeah, it's really... Um, uh, there's another scene where the, the mobsters are uh, having a, a big Italian dinner and they pick up a uh, sort of a chalice of olive oil, and it's labeled cholesterol. Because they pour it on their meal. Give it a bit of Baba Bane. Um, I mean, especially as you get in the third act of this film, you want to talk about crazy pacing. There's so many people getting executed. Oh, yeah. And that's also one of the only times in the series where um, I think that the sh- I think when 
thing that confuses uh, makes confusion is that there's the um, Shinkai and the Sinkai guys, and then they're rubbing each other out because Hirona was staying with them, and Yamamori is beefing with the Doi guys, and Yamamori rubs out um, the Doi boss in a really, really, really bad rain hit. You know, he's rolling around in the uh, gutter. And the thing is, like like I was saying, um, when you see people get rubbed out in this movie, it's it, it looks painful, and it's unpleasant. And, um, you know, they've got this gang boss rolling around in the gutter, in Yakuza films, you would never have a boss, like, you know, writhing around like a fish in a rainy gutter, like, all covered in blood and shit. Mm. And, um, and then the retaliation sequence is that um, it's the only time in the series where you see uh, just random underlings getting, you know, fucked up. Is that, like, I think there's a scene where it's, like, four Yamamori men, you know, oh, hospitalized, yeah. and, like, one Ueda henchman killed. Like, they don't even get names, they're so dispensable. And uh, 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 or the train sequence, uh, that was another good um, hit, I guess you could call it. And the hits, and the hits just keep, keep coming, coming on KBOOFM. I mean, Thrasher, what did you think of the ending of this film? Because, I mean, that, that ending is like super fucking cool. What happens. Yeah, yeah. It's a real well, badass moment, and you're like, this is the ending? I want to keep on watching this yeah. shit. Well, because well, like, like, like first, well, because first you get that whole thing where, where like, where like Hirano tracks that one guy down, and of course the guy be thinking, "Oh shit, you're here to kill me!" And he's freaking out like, "No, no, I just, we're, I'm just gonna talk. They want me to kill you, but I kind of don't want to." And and it's and it's really wonderful because before then we learned that he he's got like he's got a I don't know if they were married, but like his love interest is there, and she's got a baby, and there's all these modern conveniences, and you know you're kind of seeing this domestic bliss. Right. That they can't really have because of their lives of violence. Also his, um, but they kind husband, of. Ha- I think uh, her husband was a uh, veteran, I believe. I think that's part of it. Too, yes, yes. That that's a big thing. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, she, like, he, he he's the, the father deal. of the child. He sets up the memorial the... like, very frantically when, when Hirona comes over. Yeah, and and they just have that that, that final conversation uh, to to clear to clear the air, uh, but then uh, you know Sakai uh, Sakai does they they realize they're probably end up killing each other. Uh, Sakai does get killed, but by uh, but I believe by another rival boss's thugs and. That that funeral at the end, it's a guy's funeral. There, there's a, a lot of tension. Everybody's wearing their traditional garb, and Hirano just kind of comes casually striding in, and the, the way he the way he shoots up all like the funeral plaques, and he shoots what I believe is a container with Sakai's ashes. Yeah, that's something uh, that would um, uh, occur throughout Fukusaku's films. There's a great scene, uh, I guess, spoiler alert, in Graveyard of Honor where. You have a, a rogue Yakuza dude um, positioning his ex-boss for, for permission and money to start his own family, and he eats his um, ex-wife's bones from an urn. Mm. So I guess like the desecration of tradition is something that really runs rich in the in the Fukusaka oeuvre. And um, that was the thing is that like, you know, uh, Nagiso, Shima, uh, Teru Ishii, um... um uh, Yatsuba, um, Kenji Masumi, a lot of these guys who were contemporaries of Fukusaku, 
um, really addressed that he was an important dude, but never got the mainstream attention that the other Japanese filmmakers would get, like guys that we know, like Nagisa Oshima, or Akahachi Okamoto, or, um, um, uh, you know, uh, Koryashi Kurohara, and, um, and when that ending happened in the Yakuza papers, it was very jarring. It would be like, um, you know, it would be like a, you know, a Sonny Corleone like kicking over gravestones in a Corleone, you know, mm. scene. Like, that's a big deal, him shooting the prayer tablets from all the Yakuza bosses. Like, that was a, that was very, very, very groundbreaking. No one had ever really done that before because, again, the, the traditional Yakuza films were very, very much rooted in, in honor and chivalry and all this other stuff. And then in Fukusaku just kind of just, you know, wiped it, wiped his ass with all that in the best possible way. I mean, it, 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 I mean, it, it is this this final act of absolute desecration, uh, and you know, in in a sense, Hirano, you know, that is Hirano's final confrontation with Sakai in, 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 in trash of this funeral. But then, when it's all over, you know, he he turns to the boss and, and kind of says, "Well, you know, I've I've, I've settled I've settled my business. I'm done. Mm-hmm. But if you want this to continue, I have more bullets." Right. And then that's all she wrote on that. You know awesome. that. That yeah. recognition that well, violence is probably going to be- get more violence, but at least I'm prepared. It usually does. <laughs> I I have to ask something, Alex, because you have the box set. Uh, I wouldn't mind picking it up sometime, especially the Blu-ray set, which unfortunately, because it's from Arrow Films, is in a limited quantity. Honestly, I, I would, if I were you, I yeah? not just being nostalgic. I would get the, I would get the DVD, because yep. um. On the one hand, there's some errors in translation. Like, there's some scenes where um, a character will refer to each other as uh, Aniki, and they'll use the, the, the character's name in the translation, where Aniki is actually a translation of... of, of it's Japanese for brother. Which is they, they translated this as bro, bro I think. In, in a few scenes, yeah. Which, which is fine, but they scenes. would actually put the character's name in the subtitle, I guess, to help you um, remember their names. But the thing is, I think I've sent this... I know I've sent this to you before, Matt. Oh, oh, the, the um, yeah, show it to Thrasher. It's yeah, really no, it's something. super handy. You basically get a five-volume map of of what's wow. what in the series, and it's nice. incredibly helpful. I don't know if it's on the Arrow Blu-ray or not. Yeah. I, I, I would guess not, and but the, the thing I wanted to ask you about, it looks like in 1980, um, in Japan, they did something on the Toei TV network, did something quite similar to what happened to uh, The Godfather, where it was called, I think, maybe The Godfather, the complete novel for television or something, where in the ter- with that version of The Godfather, it's recut chronologically, but with um, the, these Yakuza paper films. It is, it is the first, the first four, four films edited, edited into a compilation, but I, is it just the the four films? They're each film back to back because it says it's a 224 minute oh. compilation. These are not long pictures. Yeah, they usually clock in at like you know uh, 90 something minutes a piece. So usually like you know this one's 98 minutes. I think they're all in that time zone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, you know the first one was never intended to be a series, but it was a hit, so the studios ordered more. And then the second one, the second and third ones, in my opinion, are the best of the series, actually. Um, the second one, you've got Miko Kashi and um, Sonny Chiba, so. Wow. And the violence has stepped up a lot much more, so they're great. I'm looking forward to talking about those. And then the fourth and fifth ones, um, 
they're terrific too they don't really feel like they're you know um padding the information to get more um info out of them but i don't really see how you could re-edit them into a chronological structure like you would the godfather series yeah yeah, yeah as, as we're mentioning in the in the facebook chat um this is a series that is mostly chronological yeah definitely um and the thing is, is that the thread throughout it is is uh, Shozo Hiriyono because um, he goes on and starts his own family in the second one, um, and then his narrative with all these other characters kind of becomes more elaborate. And they actually bring back uh, Tatsuo Umiya, who was Wakasugi. He was the guy that gets whacked when he's wearing the the uh, sailor or the schoolboy outfit. Remember? Mm-hmm. Where he hides out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he comes back because he became an actual a big star in between that time. So. They just kind of revised his character, so. God, the stuff on Wikipedia is so ridiculous. I was looking yeah. at the, the actor uh, Tetsuyo Umamiya, and it says, the second sentence on there, he was represented by the agency Pickles. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, I, I'm so glad we have you on to talk about these films, Alex. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and uh, I, 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 I've seen this movie three times. I, I'd love to see it. I'm sure if I saw it a fourth, even a tenth time, yeah. I would pick up new things each time. And that's truly the, uh, the sign of a good film. I give this a sequel yes. Roger? Absolutely a sequel yes. This was a wonderful experience. Indeed. And Alex? Sequel yes all the way. <laughs> very, very good. Um, so, gee. Yeah, I guess we're going to do pitch a sequel, which given all the characters, all the names... Everything that's going to be a bit hard, but I will begin. I think it, it, I will go with the premise that um, this film didn't do that well, but yet it had elements that the producer wanted to exploit. So I would have the sequel be a soft reboot, and it would be Battles Without Honor and Humanity Babies. In which you would have um, kind of like Bugsy Malone, you you would have small children, uh, prepubescent children, doing uh, almost a shot-for-shot remake. And uh, to add insult to injury, the the score would be the same, except it would not be played by professional uh, trumpet players or whatever other instrument brass instruments they they tend to favor. It'll be played by a really crappy sixth-grade band. So it'll have like blown notes. And uh, my, my dog, uh, Starbuck, agrees. Yes. She strongly agrees, as you Very can smart dog. maybe hear in the mic. <laughs> and like Bugsy Malone, would all the gunplay gun be replaced by pie fights? Oh, it's got to be, yeah. Well, because it's Japan, I don't think they would... It wouldn't be a, a, a cream pie. It, it, instead, it would be the, the very popular anpan, the, the bread stuffed with the red, uh, sweet red bean or paste. Or pachiko balls, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, maybe one of the scenes, a guy wakes up with uh, pachinko balls, I don't know, like coming out of his mouth or something. Yeah, he had a rough night the night before. So that's a Pachinko Kid. Yeah. I, I bet you there's a Japanese movie called The Pachinko Kid. There probably is, actually, yeah. I, I, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, Battles Without hum- Honor and Humanity Babies is my uh, thrasher. All right, so mine's going to be uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, Mr. Yakuza. So what's going to happen is because Sakai's funeral and ashes got desecrated, Sakai rises from the grave as a hopping vampire to get revenge 
on all the Yakuza. And in the end, only only Hirano can only Hirano can give him rest. But in order to do that, Hirano basically has to prostrate himself in front of the hopping Yakuza vampire Sakai and, and beg his forgiveness. And that is what kind of balances karma. And then uh, Sakai returns to his grave. <laughs> is um, does he bleed red? Does he bleed green like a Vulcan? Like what? What's the color of the blood here? Uh, it's gonna be like that that creepy like black blood. Oh yeah, like festering ah, that, yeah, blood. Yeah, looks good when it comes out of the mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Alex, your pitch is equal. All right. So my pitch is sequel is is that it was hard for me to divorce myself from the series because it's so uh, beloved. But so I figured after Hirono, you know, desecrates. I figured he got out on leave from the first film to go to the funeral. Oh, it's a doggy. Um, so we got on leave, he desecrates the funeral, and then also, you know, the uh, prison courts and all that realize that, you know, this guy's committed two murders in, like, a few years, and he's got a life sentence. However, what he does is that he works his way through the ranks and becomes, like, a head CEO in the prison. So he becomes, like, a Yakuza pit bull prison guard, and then, like, presides over all, you know, criminal goings-ons within and without the prison, and then, you know, uh, has his own criminal empire and becomes the Yakuza boss from within the prison system, thus reigning in an era of drugs, terror, violence, and, uh, you know, assassinations in and inside of the prison, overthrows Yamamori, and then becomes gang boss. Bam. Pretty neat. Pretty neat. Yeah, why not? I like it. It's, it's no Paul Blart Mall Cop, but it'll do. But it'll do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, um... <laughs> On to what you're watching, one of my favorite segments on the show, just because I like talking movies that aren't sequels all the time. Uh, that being said, I lo- of course, I love doing sequel casts too, but uh, I have um, time on my hands as I'm unemployed, unfortunately, and I decided to take advantage of that with the free 14-day trial of Criterion Channel. I have, have either of you guys tried this out yet? Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, there's awesome stuff. I, I, I'm, it has human curated, uh, sort of like themed collections of films that revolve on a monthly basis. It has what you'll like, Thrasher. It has the special features on there, like commentaries and the documentaries and stuff. It does a much better job at that sort of uh, um, archiving of that material of what's on the disc than, than any other streaming service I've seen. Yeah, they did way better than um, Filmstruck. <laughs> I, I would, you know, the time I was actually going to do Filmstruck, they had gone out of business the day I was going to start subscribing yeah. to it. Yeah, now you might have dodged a bullet oh. there. Yeah, because it, but, um, you know, Out of the Ashes of Filmstruck came the Criterion channel. I'm, I'm a big fan. They also have some original programming on there, it looks like. Yeah, yeah, they got some pretty awesome stuff. I saw a really good documentary about Ozu on there. I saw, I saw a short about a, about a um, Stan Lee was French friends with a French, French director and even wrote a screenplay for him. That's right. Hmm. I forget and which French director, but... It, 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 it was Stan Lee before he became especially senile, so he's still pretty with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's really charming about that short documentary uh, is it they do artwork of, like, comic panels to do as cutaways, so it's not just talking heads the whole time. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Uh, but I brought up Criterion Channel because I saw a uh, a film, Contempt, 
by John Luke Godard. Ooh, classic. I, I've ne- yeah, yeah, I've never seen that one. My knowledge of a lot of foreign cinema isn't great, but especially French and Italian, there's big gaps in there. And uh, this is my first uh, Godard, and I'd oh, nice. to watch other pictures. This has Bridget Bardot and Jack Palance, and it's a... It's about a writer who is working on a movie that is sort of a loose, artsy uh, remake of the Odyssey, and he's sort of torn between making it really artsy or putting a lot of tits in there. Um, and the, the the guy that wants him to do the tits is the studio exec played by Jack Palance. Jack Palance, yeah. And I, I've never seen him with black hair before in a movie. It's weird, yeah. And it, it's kind of weird, but he's quite good at being a scumbag. Uh, at, the at the same, same time, time, he also is, you know, the movie is more of a romance than I was expecting. Yeah. So I, I, I tweeted this out uh, saying I was inspired to watch it loosely from the, the Malton on Movies podcast tagging Leonard Malton and Jesse Malton. And they actually retweeted it all over their feeds, which I wasn't expecting. So it's always nice when that happens. Oh, nice. But, um, but yeah, I anyway, strongly recommend the Criterion channel. And uh, I'm almost thinking, I mean, we could have this conversation off mic, but let's have it on mic because it makes the show more awkward. Yeah. Um, We've talked about sponsors. You know, we don't make any money doing this. I'm going to try to get Criterion Channel as a sponsor. And then to offset it because we're we're not terribly serious, I want to get the Full Moon moon, uh, Features uh, streaming service or maybe the Troma streaming service. There you go. Both ends of the spectrum. Well, and also exactly. Criterion, I do a weekly column on the Criterion Collection. Hey, hey, hey. That's, cool. yeah, that's right, at uh, yeah. Battleship Potemkin. Uh, Pretension. <laughs> yes. Very, very good. Um, Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? Uh, so uh, this past, uh, just past weekend, I watched Toy Story 4. I have not oh, seen I, that, yeah. I saw that recently on the, the Disney Plus service. Um, yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, Toy Story, I, I'm sure I've talked about this before just in some detail, but like Toy Story has been a series that I've really enjoyed. It's also very important to me for a number of reasons we don't necessarily have time to go into now. Um, and Toy Story 4 is the only one I hadn't seen in the theaters. It just kind of yeah, slipped high, yeah. past me. I now wish I had seen it in the theaters. I, I really enjoyed the fourth one. It does not reach the same heights that Toy Story 3 reached, but I don't think that it needs to. In a lot of ways, it is a it is a victory lap for the Toy Story series, but it also provides a different kind of closure than what we got in Toy Story 3. Alright. I... I, I have an alternate take, and I'm sure we'll talk about it sometime on the show, because we did cover Toy Story 1 through 3 uh, several years ago on the, on the program. Um, I did not like it really at all. Really? Yeah. I, I think it... I, I agree with your victory lex statement. It's absolutely not as good as the first three films. But to me, it just felt so unnecessary. Um, it, it does almost feel like a gap film that sets up Toy Story the next generation, as it were. So, uh, mark my words, there's going to be a Toy Story 5, or maybe it'll be called New Toy Story, uh, or, or what, however they, they go with it. But, yeah, I, I did not, I, I was not blown away by it. Um, that being... I mean, like, Toy Story 3 wrapped things up so well, I was kind of underwhelmed by the announcement of Toy Story 4, because I felt like, yeah. what else can you do? 
Right, and I, I recall in one of the interviews leading up, um, Tim Allen, I think, received a phone call from Tom Hanks because Tim Allen was heading to, to do his part in the studio as a Buzz Lightyear. And, uh, and he said, you know, you're going to, this movie's pretty intense. It's going to make you cry a lot, dude, more so than the other ones. But, like, I, I did not find that at all. I cried at the end of Toy Story 3. I usually don't cry watching movies. Yeah, no, one and really three made me. me cry. Two did not, but, yeah, one and three definitely, yeah. Oh, really? Two of the When Somebody Loved Me? I mean, that they'll never beat that musical number. That's, yeah. No, it's all. They should have won the Oscar that year. That was. Yeah, it's all sturdy stuff. Yeah. But I can't I say anything. I suspect. I, I suspect that's more of a personal statement from Hanks. I could totally understand Tom Hanks kind of having that emotional reaction to this film just because of his role within it. Although it is presumptuous to assume other people are going to respond the same way. Uh, if you're a big Woody, <laughs> a straight face. If you're a big Woody fan, you'll like Toy Story Four. It it it, it really gives. Um, Woody a lot to do. Oh, really, Niles? It, it really gives Woody a lot to do besides scream at people the whole time and say, "Now, now, now, get in line." Ah, uh, what you doing, Buzz? What you doing? Like, like Woody is like Woody's the Leon... kind of an asshole. And the and he the is first... he is an asshole, yeah. just like Kermit the Frog is an asshole, exactly. and he's also like he's Thank also you. like Leonardo of the Ninja Turtles, and that and that he's he's not fun to be around. All he has to do is make sure everyone's in line. He's like the the, yeah. the drill sergeant. He's the Arlie Ermy. Of, of the Toy Story. Yeah. He's, uh, Which is weird because Arlie Ermey is in Toy Story. <laughs> That's As a, a question. Did Arlie he Ermey reprise his role before he died or no? Is it a sound alike? What's that? Is it uh, I think his character might be in Toy Story 4, but is, hasn't he been dead for a while? Is it done by a different uh, no, uh, no, the toy soldiers are not in Toy Story 4. Oh, well, okay. Deal breaker. I could have sworn. Oh, but Carl Weathers does play uh, yes. the combat Carl line of action I, figures. Right. I, I did right. like that. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, um, more thoughts on that later, I think. But, yeah, that, that's quite interesting. <laughs> I, I I wasn't mad that I watched it, but I wasn't. I was, I was kind of nonplussed, I suppose. Well, I think the funny thing is that I remember when it came out um, in Battleship Pretension, Tyler uh, did a review of it. And he was one of the first guys to give it a um, a uh, rotten or negative review. And like the amount of like hate speech he got on the Battleship Pretension website was like overwhelming. That's hysterical. It was like, how dare you disrupt the perfect score of of, of Toy Story Four? <laughs> like you, mo- like people were pissed. Like if you look at the the comment thread on it, it's almost like jarring. It's crazy. I did. That's weird. Like I, oh. I can understand not liking not liking the movie. I still thought it was pretty yeah. fun. I thought it was, I thought it was a sequel. It's totally unnecessary, but it deserves to exist, well, and it was I think worth that making. Was his point of view is that he's like, I don't dislike it, but I don't feel like it's necessary. And even then, right. it was just like, nope, you disrupted the tomatoometer or whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's the Starship Troopers invasion of the series. Yeah, no, seriously, it's a, it's a total bug. <laughs> the tomato, the rottentomatoes dot com is a real blight. It's so uh, problematic. Fuck them, just fuck them. It's so Jesus problematic. And I, I, I kind of like you know, even though I am a twice tomato certified critic, I think it sucks. Wait, really? I didn't know that. That's oh yeah, cool. through film inquiry and voucher pretension. Yeah, I guess I have a say in things. 
Well, I mean, it's well, like, it, like it has. It starts from like a noble place. Let's aggregate film right. reviews. Yes, but then but, everything uh, it's used for is awful. The thing that bothers me is that I'll say like, "Hey, I, friend I have of mine, to... did you see so and so?" And they're like, "It got a fifty-two percent of Rotten Tomatoes." And I'm like, "Well, who gives a shit? See a movie because you like movies, man." Like, even even my my wife were like browsing. Um, oh, I forget. Huh. It, it might be on iTunes or something where it lists the tomato meter, right? A thermometer, uh, whatever. Shermometer. It stinks. Uh, yeah. It, it, it lists the Rotten Tomato rating right next to the film. And she was like, eh, I don't want to see that. It's a blah, blah, blah and Rotten Tomatoes. And it's like, watch it and make up your own opinion. Right. Exactly. And it's like, if I'm tomato certified, if I have a say in this, then why are you listening to me? You know, I'm the worst critic you could have. So, what does that tell you? If they let me in, then no. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. I, um, here, I, I'll have to share with you uh, on RottenTomatoes.com. For some reason, they have archived reviews from the old news group Reviews or whatever. And there's oh, movie wow. reviews from when I was 12 on there. And it, it's under my mom's name because the ISP wouldn't put my name as the person. And so, when back in the day when you posted on news groups, it would have whatever your 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 alias was and so yeah i i remember back in the day getting a lot of angry responses to reviews like you can't be a woman with expressions like that and i didn't want to say i'm and i didn't want to say i'm not i'm using my mother's account but uh uh yeah i feel like i feel like people who make those kinds of statements don't know many women i feel like i have to look up my first rotten tomatoes review now So, did you do you submit yourself to be in Rotten Tomatoes? How does that work? Um, no, I was writing for Film Inquiry. Well, like this whole journey starts with um, with Pulp three sixty five and Matt Carrion, and then I was yeah, writing yeah, for yeah. them, and He's then um, that segued into Film Inquiry. And then by default, mm-hmm. anything I reviewed for Film Inquiry was tomato certified. They didn't. They were like, "Yeah, whatever." We, wow. We we figured you wouldn't mind, so I didn't really care. And luckily, all the movies I reviewed were, were, were things that no one else really watched. So, um, hmm. I think the main... No, I'm just impressed, that's all. That's neat. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, Spectre, I think, was the first movie that I uh, was tomato certified. What a piece of shit. I hope yeah, that... Yeah, no, I didn't like another, it at all. I hope that whatever the... <laughs> what, like, Die, 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 whatever the new one is called, is a bit better. Yeah, um, no, it's gotta be, because Spectre sucked. Die again today, tomorrow. Yes, please don't live again. I do like the Billie Eilish song. I'll give you that much. It's it's better than that. Well, I did a um, I did a my top ten Bond thing for Bowser Pretension. I think it's um, mm-hmm. I think I did uh, for Marshall with Love, Casino Royale, Majesty's Secret Service, um, Goldfinger, Octopussy, Living Daylights, Hard, uh, Living Daylights, um, License to Kill, and. Oh, the spy loved me. Yeah, those are my ten. You know what I would love to see? I would, and whether whether it's a Bond movie or just a movie done in the style of Bond, I would love to see just a Bond a Bond movie set in like the early '60s, done like the Bond movies from that early period, but played completely straight. Right, with no like ham-fisted dialogue or. A comedy, yeah. No, yeah, no, no, like Austin Powersy stuff. Just like a, a real tribute to that particular era of spy films. Just do everything those movies did well, and just dress it up to the nines. I think uh, there's that French series of films that um, 
nails the look of the old James Bonds, but it is certainly comedic. Uh, God damn it, what is it called? I can't think of the name, but... Do you, do you know what I'm talking about, Alex? The ones with uh, Belmondo. Yes, yes, those. Yeah, uh, Le Magnifique and the man from... Uh, the man from something. Right, uh, but those are quite... I mean, the way they nailed the cinematography and even the John Barry-style music... Is, oh, yeah, no, they killed it. And then on the other cool. side of it, you've got the John Le Carre stuff, which I love. I think the John Le Carre movies are fantastic. Um, so are the BBC miniseries from the 80s. Oh, yeah, the Smiley's With Alec Guinness. Yeah. yeah. Those movies are terrific. Uh, those are awesome. And then there's uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold with um, Oscar Werner and uh, Richard Burton there. Yeah, those are great. Yeah. Uh, so, um, that's really cool. Alex, what's something you've been watching? Oh shit, yeah. Um, I've been on, a, <laughs> I've been on a, a very, very hardcore um, Abel Ferreira kick. So, in the past few months, I've watched um, his film uh, "Welcome to New York." It's about uh, the French. Hang on one second. So yeah, um, Abel Ferreira's uh, 2014 film um, Welcome to New York is about a uh, sex scandal that was um, that followed in the Dominique Strauss-Kahn um, report and uh, Gerard Depardieu plays him and it's a very hard-hitting um, it's a very hard-hitting uh, tale of sexual abuse um, that's a post, uh, post 9-11 pre-Me Too era New York City and enable Ferreira's a uh, tradition of hard-hitting storytelling. It's a very, very wonderful movie. And then I also got his um, uh, film China Girl, which kind of plays like a um, cross between uh, West Side Story and Romeo and Juliet. But you take the singing and dancing out and replace it with uh, the uh, Chinatown gangs and um, Little Italy gangs and the Canal Street that divides them. It's like the DMZ between the two neighborhoods in New York City. It's, it's really wild. So yeah, hey, I forgot that the, the Spielberg, Spielberg remake of West Side Story is coming out this year, this year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited because huh. it's Spielberg. I mean, except I, I like that he's using, um, I think, like Broadway actors for the most part. I don't think there's really that many famous people or pop stars in it. On the other hand, I don't know. I mean, I think it'll certainly do better than something like Jersey Boys, which used a similar yeah. approach. Right. Uh, and, and Jersey Boys was actually a pretty good picture, really. Um, yeah, I think... Um, you know, whenever Spielberg does anything, I'm excited. Because he's just damn great. Um, you know, if he wants to do West Side Story, I'm sure he'll put his original spin on it. And if it sucks, then it'll still have gleams of merit in it. Um, but I don't... I, I think Spielberg's a director that's um, aged well with the times. So I am uh, cautiously excited for his West Side Story. Yeah. yeah. Um, likewise, I, I think, you know, it's the one I really want to get a review copy of is Cats. I did not get a chance to see that in the theater. And I, I, I would have loved to see it uh, both opening weekend and then the following weekend when they released a revised version of the film to theater with enhanced effects. 
Well, um, in cases, or in some cases, completed effects. Well, I pitched this idea around of a neorealist cats, where you just um, you had actors like behaving like cats without the without the makeup or CGI or costumes. So you would just have like you know a bunch of naked people walking around shitting on boxes of sand and you know like cleaning themselves and you know walking around and licking their arms and stuff. You know that that sounds more interesting than the movie we got. <laughs> That almost sounds like a Takeshi Miike film, or, or if yeah, not that, probably, a pretty yeah. avant-garde French picture. Um, if, if you're looking for a good musical, and we're going to wrap things up pretty soon here, dear listeners, check out uh, Happiness of the Katakuris. Oh, yeah. Have you seen, it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Even better, the original movie that it's based on is streaming on Prime, the original Korean film, which I have not seen the original, but it's called The Something Family. Have you seen- see, I was going to say Scr- Scratchy the Killer. <laughs> oh, I, I see what you did there. Yeah, you, you get it now? Yeah, and That was the thinker. Because the, the cat ejaculates on the, the grass in the beginning and it spells out the credits. <laughs> well, no, but... <laughs> I, I saw that in, uh, in, in, in college at a, at a screening and uh, we had walkouts within like the first two minutes. It was delightful. Oh, you know what's funny is that I have well, we this... all the Miike films I've seen, um, Each Day of the Killer is probably one of my least favorites. And out of, um, to go back to the What Are You Watching uh, thing, I just recently saw Takashi Miike's First Love, which is actually really awesome. Hmm. It's a very electrifying Yakuza film. And there's a main character in it who has like a, like a key of cocaine in his jacket and he gets shot a bunch. And the cocaine gets like into his system and then he gets oh. his arm oh. cut off later and he can't feel that it happens so he tries to grab the pistol out of his deathlock arm and it's uh you know comically gruesome and kind of awesome so on the subject of cats i i have heard now on on multiple podcasts most recently uh sarah and michael save christmas which you can listen to on it's a duckblur.com i believe is their website um is that there there are theaters that have been doing like called rowdy screenings of cats where it's like the rocky horror picture show people dress up and there's call and response and people drink it'll be a cult film like that no doubt also i mean uh, especially when it comes out on, on video, uh, the memes will never die. Oh, no, never. You know, some of those that, that occurs to me, as far as like the, the, the long and winding road to get cats to the screen, uh, at one point, uh, the Disney studio was trying to get an animated cats made, and I think this may have even been when Don Bluth was still working in them, were, uh, working with Disney, and so there's some concept art from what would have been the Disney animated versions of version of Cats. The concept art is fascinating. That makes so much more sense to me than anything else. It does, else. it does. <laughs> I have to correct you, it was not Disney, it was Don Bluth, and it was Spielberg oh. when he did his Land Before Time uh, American Tale kind of... Oh, during that, that yeah, period? Yeah, during that period of, of doing the... being a cartoon man for a bit. Um, I wish he'd go back yeah, to that. I wish, I wish yeah, he'd Tiny try Animaniacs. The, although, what, uh, Animaniacs is getting... Animaniacs is getting a, a reboot on Hulu or something. Yeah, but I'm not sure how much of a hand, an active hand he has in that. I mean, do you think he really had an active hand in the original, to be perfectly honest? When he's directing... I mean, supposedly, at least in the initial development, like, he showed up to meetings, but, like, you know, once the creative staffs were in place, then he kind of took a back seat. Um, But I don't know. I mean, he was still a creative force uh, for all that. I'd rather professional. 
the one I'm dying to see that just came out is um, they came out with a cartoon of Superman Red Sun. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with that one, Alex? Um, I know the Red Sun title. Yeah, so it's it's I an alternate history. This is not related to Toshiro Mishune, but this oh. Red Sun <laughs> is a super... I, I've been I've wanting to see that Mifune film, film for quite some time. It's um, very cause, weird and cause kind of the, not good. The, but. the cast is, is really something. But yeah, anyhow, yeah, but the, yeah. the Superman Red Sun is this kind of Elseworlds what if scenario where what if uh, Cal L's uh, you know, baby ship landed in uh, Russia instead of the U.S. And Batman's in there, Lex Luthor is in there. Uh, kind of heroes and villains are, are flipped, and it's more of a, a communist bent to the story, as you might imagine, socialist bent to the story. And it's um, far and away one of the top graphic novels I've ever read. That sounds awesome. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, it's just a shame the character designs on these direct-to-video DC comic cartoons uh, are, are sometimes kind of flat and not as good as the comic art. Yeah. Well, they've they've never they've never really had an aesthetic as strong as the DC the old DC animated universe look. Yeah. Oh, oh, you, what you mean when you say DC? The Batman, the animated oh, series, I see, in the nineties, yep. Justice yeah, League look. Right. Not a, not as painterly. Um, okay. Yeah, I think uh, when you animate it, you lose some of the painterly, you know, scope of it all. No. What? Yeah, I mean, there's that really brief window around the time when the Watchmen movie came out where they did motion comics, which those oh. look, to me, which always look, look shitty. To me, always look shitty. Which one? Where they, they do a, a motion comics is a thing where they they digitize each frame of the comic and then kind of wiggle things around to make it look like they're moving. like an animatic or something like that, yeah. Basically, yeah. You know, the, the one time that I feel was done well, and this, this was a product, uh, do y'all uh, do y'all remember, uh, probably don't, but uh, in the 90s, big entertainment? No. Mm. Uh, so it was a it was a multimedia thing, but its primary focus was on comics, uh, and it had a comic co-created by Leonard Nimoy and Isaac Asimov uh, called Primordials, which was all it was a first contact story. But the twist was the aliens that mankind was making contact with had all evolved from ancient terrestrial species that had gone extinct on Earth, but had been dropped on other planets to continue their natural evolution. Um, and it told this really neat sweeping story. There were a lot of politics in it. Um, but they released, I, I think they called it like a virtual comic. And it was effectively a motion comic. It was based on the actual issues. You'd go through panel by panel. They would add animation and sound effects. But it had two interesting features. Is One, there were four main characters. And you could switch between the perspectives of the main characters whenever they intersected in the story. So awesome. there's a so bit of gamification fa- in there. Yeah, and, yeah. and th- oh, there was quite a bit of gamification because the other thing is at various points in the comic, there would sometimes be a mini game. Like for instance, one of the first what things the is Zerus, the main Zerus, the main villain. He sends a signal to Earth that Seti picks up. So there's a mini game where it's Seti trying to decode his symbol into something that they can understand. No shit. That that's um, I'll have to try and dig for that on the internet way back machine perhaps that's that's really quite something. 
it was re- it was really fascinating. I I owned a copy. I don't know if I still have the disc anywhere. And of course, I don't have a system it'll run on now. But it was a fascinating experiment, and and I would love to see I would I would love to see something similar to that happen again. And that was kind of the best possible version of a motion. Comic. The closest I've seen is not a motion comic, but as far as like interactivity in a, in a film is uh, that that uh, Bandersnatch episode of. of Black Mirror. Oh, Black Mirror. Yeah, someone watch that. It it's it's good. Yeah, I, I, I recommend it. Nice. Yeah, I remember um, I didn't want to get like sucked into like the 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 you know the whirlpool of interactive yeah, television. It, it, I think I when I played it, I stayed up for five hours trying to do all the paths. Yeah, and I get pretty close to <laughs> yeah getting getting sucked in there. Well, great. Uh, so the uh, the sequel scene we're not going to do because we can't find a lot of quotes from this movie and the dialogue is also all in Japanese so I don't think anybody wants to hear us going like uh, or anything like that so yata let's let's all plug whatever we have to plug Alex Oh, uh, you can find me at BattleshipRetention.com. I occasionally write for FilmInquiry.com, and I also have a YouTube channel of The Trailer Project, where we recently profiled the top ten movie shootouts according to The Trailer Project. Uh, don't worry, there will be more volumes following this one. Excellent. Mr. Thrasher, can you talk about something you're working on or no? Uh, I can uh, actually I can uh, talk about two things. Uh, one, as far as new releases go, uh, Skirmisher Publishing has just released a uh, a book I worked on called The Prop Room. Uh, it's uh, sort of a, a general aid for tabletop role playing. It is a collection of four articles I wrote for the old uh, D Infinity Gaming magazine, and it's all it's all articles about four simple props you can make to enhance your tabletop gaming. So how to make uh, interesting looking gold relics, how to make a code wheel, uh, how to uh, how to make interesting interactive treasures for, for people to, to divvy up uh, at the end of a dungeon crawl. The other thing because this is, I've mentioned uh, that I I think I've mentioned, uh, I am a contributing author for the upcoming new edition of Fading Suns which uh, Ulysses North America is coming out with. It's a classic space opera tabletop RPG. Uh, the Kickstarter for that is launching uh, March 24th. There's going to be a big Kickstarter for the new edition that'll probably be launching about the time this episode comes out. I heartily recommend you check out that Kickstarter. Uh, you back this this book. If you're a fan of, of kind of Hyperion Canto slash Dune style space opera, this is the setting for nice. you. And I've, and I've had a hand in it. Uh, so, you know, I, I want to see this line flourish. I'd like more opportunities to work with it. Uh, so no, that's that's my personal angle. On it. so it's been really rewarding, Thrasher, as we've been friends for so long, watching your career advance to, uh, you know, from working on kind of independent things to doing some bigger projects to, you know, you know newer versions of things you grew up playing. Um I well, you can you can buy my book on Amazon. Buy my book. Buy my buy book. Buy my uh, book. Buy my book. Uh, the films of Uwe Boll, <laughs> Volume One, the video game movies. I'm hard at work on Volumes Two and Three. Those will take less time to write. It took me almost two years to write Volume One because I had a, didn't really have a good process down. Um, I'm also in the middle of editing a, a book that I 
I can loosely say what it is, I guess. It's a collection of interviews I conducted in my early 20s with uh, video game designers and composers. Um, some of these people later became film composers, and uh, I thought, oh, it would be a quick job, but to edit it, it took me three months to clean up spelling and grammar. So look forward to that. Um, and on, on Twitter, at M-A-T-W-B-T. So for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And I'm Alex. Same. Oh, fuck, how are we going to do this? Um, <laughs> I'll make you my successor. Here, take all this money. Take it. Spend it. I really like the Yakuza papers, the part where the man takes the sushi and takes sure a bite and it tastes like deadly cream war Hiroshima. Uh, Kojima did the war hero, and uh, the Italian neorealism inspiration of the cinematography is really, really quite something astute. Well, howdy, I tell you what, we're going to go to war on the Doja clan and get her done. I hope I don't get into a deadly war in Hiroshima. I heard you paint houses. I'm, I'm choking off the impression I want to do, but I really should. Don't hold it. Back. Well, there's really, it's a, every time I watch these, uh, these, uh, these Yakuza pictures, uh, it, it always has so much blood and violence, and, and I wonder, why can't they have more sex? As I said, a sex with one pe- person is great, with five is fantastic. I hear your pain houses. Do your impression, Thrasher, and then we'll stop. Unless, okay. <laughs> I don't feel so bad now that... You know I like to go to Akihabara <laughs> for the pudding. Uh, oh, God. I, f- I feel dirty. <laughs> good night, fellas. That was a good show. Adios, man. That was great. Uh, right up until the end. <laughs> uh,